That'll work. Larry probably already started drawing up the papers. Have you ever noticed that uh, every profession and occupation has built into it certain inherent dangers, um, otherwise known as occupational hazards? For example, for attorneys, that occupational hazard may have to be with being the butt of many jokes. However, for as much money as they make, it's at least that you know, they could put up with, right? For others, it's the occupational hazard that may involve some physical dangers. You know, you can think of things like law enforcement, um, firefighting, window washing, construction work. For others, it may be financial risk or exposure. For others, it may even be emotional distress that comes along with their profession. So I don't think it should surprise any of us to find that there are certain occupational hazards or built-in perils that come along with the, uh, the occupation of serving others. And uh, what we're going to look at this morning is the perils of a servant. You know, some of us uh, have good intentions, oftentimes, and the results somewhat are different than what we would hope that they would be. And i uh, give you an example of that about a true servant who got caught in that type of dilemma. Uh, the story goes that there was a man, a businessman, who got on a train in Albany, New York. And uh, he was going to Buffalo, and since it was a, a late day, he was running late, and it was an evening, it was a night train. And he told the porter, a true servant, he said, listen, I have to get off in Buffalo, and I am just a dead sleeper. So I'm going to be in this particular sleeper car, and when we get to Buffalo, please come and wake me up. I don't care if you have to throw me off in my pajamas, but I've got to be in Buffalo. He goes, I may fight you, I may scream and yell and whatever, but just I've got to be there. Well, the next day rolls around, and it's morning, and he wakes up, and he looks out, and he hears, next stop, Cleveland, Ohio. Cleveland, Ohio. He goes over, and he finds this porter, and he just chews him out, man, just tears him up one side, down the other. Said, you know what? I told you I had to be off. What's wrong with you? And he just went off on him. Finally, frustrated, his turn and walked away. Well, a bystander had just heard this conversation and went over to the porter and said, how in the world... Did you endure that? He goes, that was nothing. You should have heard the guy I threw off in Buffalo last night. <laughs> you know, great intentions, but sometimes the results aren't quite what they hoped they would be. But seriously, so, some of you are probably thinking, well, the perils of a servant, well, what kind of dangers could there be in serving others? And, uh, in fact, some of you said, well, what kind of dangers could there be in serving others? And some of you said, well, what kind of dangers could there be in serving others? Well, I'm glad that you asked because that's what we're going to talk about. Uh, they're a quick group this morning. Thank you very much. I'm glad you moved one row quicker up to the front. First, first what we need to do is let, let's identify some common misconceptions because, you know, there's some things that we need to understand about being Christians, about being servants of God, that the world sometimes misunderstands, and even we misunderstand, that there are certain misconceptions. Number one is that many believe that servants have special powers in and of themselves. That Christians are somehow these mystical, magical human beings that are now without any problems in their life. 
There's no difficulties. There's no struggles. Uh, we've got divine power that we can do anything. And the problem with that misconception is, is that it's exactly that. It's a misconception. The Bible nowhere anywhere infers that we as Christians are somehow special in and of ourselves. Now, you've got to listen very carefully because some of you are going, whoa, 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 whoa. But listen to what it says in 2 Corinthians 3, 5. Paul writes, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. See, Christians or God's servants have no adequacies in and of themselves. And in fact, what we've learned is that we're quite inadequate, thank you for asking. But we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And it's different than the philosophy in the world that you can do all things. You can do anything. If you put your mind to it, you can do it. And see, there's, there's a contradiction there because the Bible teaches that you can, with the mind of Christ, do all things, meaning that our adequacy comes from God and God alone. And so the misconception is, is that we're somehow above all the problems of the world, which leads to the second thing, and that is that we don't struggle with anything. You know, we've come to know Christ and Jesus has conquered sin on our behalf and we're new Christians and, and all things pass away, all things become new and man, isn't this a wonderful life? And, uh, and it is. But we still struggle with problems. We still got difficulties that we have to deal with on a, on a regular basis. 2 Corinthians 4, 8 and 9 says this, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not despairing. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. Sounds like an easy life. Afflicted, persecuted, struck down. I mean, that's a difficult life, and we know that, and we can understand that, and we can relate to it. And, and it wouldn't be difficult to go around and just ask questions. How tough was your week this week? How tough has this past month been or this past year been or the last five years? See, we live in very difficult times. And as a result, we live in a fallen world. And it affects us in different ways. The misconception is that somehow or another, everything's going to be wonderful once a person puts their faith and trust in Christ. But in reality, everything is wonderful for all of eternity, but not necessarily in the immediate the wonderful thing in the immediate is that now we have someone who cares about us, we can trust in, we can lean upon, and that has taken all those burdens. Jesus said, cast all your burdens or cares or problems upon me because I will care for you. That's the difference between a non-Christian and a Christian. But even as Christians, sometimes we don't take that, that, that encouragement to heart and we begin to try to bear all those burdens ourselves. And they can become overwhelming and they can despair us and they can crush us. And we need to get back into the Word of God and He can only help us to realize we've got to turn them and throw them all back onto Him. Because that's His job. That's what He wants to do. That's what He specializes in. And when we forget that anything can happen to us, we need to recognize that. And the last thing is that somehow or another we believe that servants are protected against all the subtle dangers of life. And that's not true either. We have a protection, we have a hope, we've got a savior, we've got someone we can turn to. But the interesting thing is the subtle dangers are those little traps, and that's what I'm gonna talk about. They're the occupational hazards of a servant. The traps that any one of us can fall into. 
the little subtle temptations that come, on, come upon us in life. And if we're not cautious and if we don't have our eyes focused on Christ and if we're not into the Word of God, we can easily be led astray and we can be tempted by those things and we can fall in those areas. And that's what I want to talk about. That's the area specifically that we're going to address. The perils of a servant involve those areas of life where when we don't keep our eyes on the Lord, we can be led astray and all kind of goofy things can happen to us. That's a... You know, I don't know what goofy means in Greek, but it's kind of like they know what it means at Disneyland. But anyway, so what I want to do is you got your Bibles with you. Turn to 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings chapter 4, and we're going to look at some of the perils of a servant. Specifically, probably want to cover a couple of them this morning, but the perils of a servant. And to illustrate it, we're going to turn back to the Old Testament, and we're going to look at the life of a true servant. His name is Gehazi, and he was a servant of the prophet Elisha. And in 2 Kings chapter 2, you can read it, and you can see the transition of the succession that takes place um, from Elijah to Elisha and the things that had gone on prior to that. But now Elisha comes on the scene, and I love to take a look at the Old Testament because in it, I believe, 1 Corinthians 10 tells us very specifically that these things were written to be an example to us so that we can learn from it. Many of the principles of God that are found in the New Testament are, are clothed, so to speak, in the lives and embodied in the lives of God's people in the Old Testament. So we can look at certain principles and say, hey, you know what? Remember the story of Gehazi, and that's the lesson or the principle that God is trying to teach us as far as the dangers of serving other people. This man was a true servant. This man was a servant of Elisha. He loved Elisha, and he was, and he was uh, dedicated as far as his servant, serving him. But he also ran into some problems. And that's what we're going to take a look at and focus on. In 2 Kings chapter 4, we'll pick up the account in verse 8. And I want you to follow along with me to see if you can identify uh, some character traits as far as, as uh, Gehazi is concerned. Now there came a day when Elisha passed over to Shunem where there was a prominent woman. And she persuaded him to eat food. And so it was, as often as he passed by, he turned in there to eat food. And she said to her husband, Behold now, I perceive that this is a holy man of God, passing by us continually. Please let us make a little walled upper chamber, and let us set a bed for him there, and a table, and a chair, and a lampstand. And it shall be when he comes to us that he can turn in there. One day he came there and turned in the upper chamber and rested. Then he said to Gehazi, his servant, Call this Shunammite. And when he had called her, she stood before him. And he said to him, Say now to her, Behold, you have been careful for us with all this care. What can I do for you? Would you be spoken for to a king or to the captain of the army? And she answered and said, I live among my own people. So he said, Well, what then is it to be done for her? And Gehazi answered and said, Well, truly she has no son, and her husband is old. And he said, Call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway, and he said, at this season, next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, No, my lord, O, my, o man of God, do not lie to your maidservant. And the woman conceived and bore a son at that season, the next year, as Elisha had said to her. This is our first introduction of this servant called uh, Gehazi. 
And uh, if you can picture what's going on here, Elisha used to pass through this particular area of the country. And when he would pass through, this woman who had uh, some spiritual sensitivity and recognized that Elisha was truly a man of God and was sensitive to his needs, said to her husband one day, hey, look, you know what? This guy keeps passing through. And when he comes by, we offer him a place to stay and, and food to eat. And he does it on a regular basis, and we continue to offer to him. Why don't we just make a little room for him up on the roof of the house here? And uh, anytime he comes, he can have his own place, his own space. He can do what he wants to do and not feel like, you know, we're in his way. But offer true hospitality. Just stay out of his way. It's, it, it's kind of it's like <clears throat> when you live in California, you've got a lot of friends and relatives who are outside of the state. And they want to come and see you uh, and, and visit you know how that goes. Uh, it'd be kind of like saying, hey, you know what? Y you come here off enough that we'll just have a, there'll be a bedroom and, and a bath downstairs and a shower and you can have an old side entrance and you just come and go as you please. And that way we don't have to go to Disneyland with you for the 727th time. Uh, you know, oh, but please, we really want you to go with us. Oh, please don't ask or we're not gonna let you stay with us. And it works out pretty good if you kind of throw it back to him that way. But, but so this is, this is the scene and this was what took place. Well, you know, Elisha thought, gee, you know what? This woman's been very good to me and this family. And uh, he asked his servant, hey, what does she need? And so he said, you know, I can go talk to the armies. I can go talk to the captains. Elisha obviously knew some people in high places. And he could do probably anything that she had wanted him to do. But here's what he asked Gehazi. Hey, uh, what do you see? I like this as a character of a servant, is that here was a man who was perceptive to the needs of other people. Gehazi thought about it and said, well, she doesn't have a son, and her husband's old. <laughs> That's the thing about getting old people to run the PA system, you know what I mean? They get, they get, they get real sensitive to that. No, just kidding. Oh. Although, think about this. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be nice to be the that couple that the servant of, of uh, Elisha thought, well, the only thing I can think of them is she doesn't have any kids and her husband's an old guy. Man, all the old guys say, what's this all about? <laughs> but anyway, so what do, you learn about what do you learn about Gehazi? He's perceptive. He's sensitive. He recognized that she had a need. She didn't even recognize what the need was, or, nor did she voice what that need was. He just said, you know what would probably be great is that if this woman had a son. And her husband's old, and it doesn't look like he's been able to you know, do anything here, so if you can talk to the Lord about it, and you know, God can work something out, because with God, all things are possible. And uh, sure enough, a year later, she had a son. And this is the first encounter that we see here, and then we'll pick up the, the, the story as it goes along in verse 18. It says, now when the child was grown, the day came that he went out to his father's father to the reapers. And he said to his father, my head, my head. And, his, and he said to his servant, carry him to his mother. When he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her lap until noon, and then he died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. Then she called to her husband and said, Please send one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may run to the man of God and return. And he said, why will you go to him today? It's neither new moon nor Sabbath. And she said, it will be well. 
Then she saddled a donkey and said to her servant, Drive and go forward. Do not slow down the pace for me unless I tell you. So she went and came to the man of God to Mount Carmel. And it came about when the man of God saw her at a distance that he said to Gehazi, a servant, Behold, yonder is the Shunammite. Please run now to meet her and say to her, Is it well with you? Is it well with your husband? Is it well with your child? And she answered, It is well. When she came to the man of God to the hill, she caught hold of his feet, and Gehazi came near to push her away. But the man of God said, Let her alone, for her soul is troubled within her, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Then she said, Did I ask for a son for my Lord? Did I not say, Do not deceive me? You picture what's going on here. So, you know, here's the son that God had promised. She has this son. Uh, he grows up or is a little older, an older child at this point. He goes out into the field one day to meet with his father and to work with the guys or just be out there with them, and he gets a headache. And all of a sudden, it begins to escalate to the point where he becomes very ill. They take the son, they take him back, they, they give him to, to his mother. His mother holds him on her lap, and at noon or midday, she di he dies. So the woman takes her son and lays him on Elisha's bed that they had prepared for him and says, I've got to go find the man of God because my son is dead. Well, Gehazi, the servant, Elisha sends him to him, sends him to her and uh, he says, is everything okay? She doesn't want to deal with this servant. She wants to go to the top dog. So she says, yeah, it's fine. Get out, you know, like, it's fine. Now get out of my way. I got to go talk to Elisha. And so he, he, you know, he gets out of the way. She runs up and says, boy, you know, what's the deal here? I didn't even ask you for a son. You, you know, you, you give me a son. You entreat upon your God to give us a son. And now here he is. He's dead. Wouldn't have been better if I never had this son. I never asked for him anyway. What's this all about? And so there's something that strikes me as kind of odd about this servant at this particular point. Because look what happens when she finally gets to Elisha in verse 27. She came to the man of God, she, she, to the hill. She caught hold of his feet. And what's this servant, this perceptive, perceptive sensitive servant do? What does, he, what does he do? He shoves her away. He said, what are you doing? Get off of him. And as I was reading through this for the first time, immediately I was reminded of several other, several other situations that were quite similar. When the multitudes would press Jesus, his disciples would shove them away. When those who had needs would come to Jesus, the multitudes would try to protect him and, and, uh, and shove them away. When the children came to Jesus, the disciples tried to keep them away. Don't bother him. Stay away from him. Quit pushing on yourself on him. And so here's this servant of God who is well-intended, but the results are, are really pitiful in a way because he is rebuked by Elisha. I said, what are you doing? Let, let her come here. The peril of Gehazi is the same peril that we have to deal with, and that is that oftentimes servants of God can be overprotective and very possessive. We can become very overprotective and very possessive. We can lose our sensitivity to the needs and the, and, the, and the heartaches of other people to the point where we try to be a buffer in between certain individuals and this person who has a need. 
And it's fascinating to me, it, you know, it, it's easy to, to see that a person with a servant's heart can oftentimes get tunnel vision. We can, we can lose focus on everything around us to where we're so tunnel visioned on what we're all about and what gifts God has given us and what things are, are happening in our life that we can forget about everybody else. You know what's fascinating? You know where I find this to be probably more prevalent than anywhere else? With people who are in the ministry? It's an occupational hazard. And it's associated particularly with staff employees. Have you ever tried to call a church and talk to a pastor? Have you ever tried to do that? You ever get the bulldog? The watchdog? See, I, I have an interesting situation because, you know, in, in this role that I, that I have with the Rams, I try to get guys to come in and speak. And we changed our services, our chapel services, to Saturday night so we can get pastors from the area to come in and speak because Sunday mornings they're all busy. So we changed it to Saturday night. So I'll make some phone calls and I'll try to round up a pastor or two and I always get the pastor's secretary, the watchdog, the bulldog, the one who's trying to protect the pastor from all the people. Now, if you're a pastor's secretary, Please, I'm not trying to slam you here. I just needed an illustration. <laughs> but 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 it's it, it's not just it's just not relegated to, to you know to pastor secretaries. It just happens to be <laughs> the the one that I run into on a regular basis. And uh, you know what's really funny is most of the time if I can get a hold of the pastor, they're pretty cool people. You know, pretty sensitive, pretty caring, compassionate. They may not be able to help you, but they can point you in the right direction. And, and you've got to understand something here about our mentality as people, too. We all want to talk to the top dog. We all do. If there's a senior pastor, why would I talk to an associate? If there's an owner of a business, why would I talk to a manager? If there's a chairman of the board... Why would I talk to the president or the vice president or someone in accounting or someone in sales or marketing or management? Why would I want to deal with any of these people if I could talk to the big guy or the big gal, whoever it is? You see what the problem is here? Is that if, if we're an associate anything, there is a danger that we can start to become so overprotective and possessive See, what happens, let me tell you something, what happens when, 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 a, when a pastor has a, a secretary that's not sensitive to people, it makes the pastor look like he's not sensitive to people. When you have a receptionist that's not sensitive to your customers, it makes the company look like it's not sensitive to its customers. Isn't that true? And see, so what happens is we've got to start to deal with people who are well-intended They've got great intentions, and they're very sincere about their approach to their business. And granted, they want to try to protect that person because there's a whole bunch of people that want to drain on their time and, and want to be, you know, they want to go there when actually somebody else can resolve that problem. And, and, but we've got to also understand the flip side of it, too, is that we can become so overprotective and possessive that it begins to show in how we handle our relationships with other people, and it's an occupational hazard of a servant of God. Gehazi, what 
don't be jumping on Elisha. What's the matter with you? What's wrong? Like, you, you know, son die or something? Well, actually, yeah. See, see how, how we can come off being that way? But I don't think he meant to be that way. I think he took pride in his job. This is my job, to protect him. But see, the disciples felt that way, and Jesus said, you know, suffer the children to come unto me not. What are you doing? Why would you, why would you hinder any person from coming to me? So, you know, we've got all these things, and we need to wrestle with it. And uh, if, you've, if you've ever dealt with that, you need to understand, if you're in a, in a servant-type position, uh, we need to be sensitive to the people that we come in response to or that want a response from us or want a response from somebody that we represent. Because, you know, as an ambassador, you're a reflection of who you represent. As a secretary, you, you reflect the company. As, as a pastor, secretary, you reflect the pastor and you reflect the church. And we need to become more sensitive to that. So we need to be careful not to become callous and sensitive and uh, overprotective and possessive. So now let's take a look at what happens here. And, and this, this Gehazi is you know, an interesting character. We're going to learn a lot from him. But look at what happens in verse 29 and 30. I want you to try to put yourself in his position. Because that's his job. He just got chewed out. What are you doing? This woman's grieving, and now you won't even let her come near me. And you, got it. you know how you've ever been chewed out at work or anywhere? You start feeling really sorry for yourself, like, oh. Well, it gets worse for this guy. So check this out. Verse 29 and 30. So Elisha says to Gehazi, gird up your loins and take my staff in your hand. And it almost makes me think that he was moping, you know, on a corner. He's kind of, it's kind of like in our terminology, it's like, oh, would you grow up, suck it up, and take the staff, and I, I, got, a, I got something for you to do. And he says, go your way. If you meet anyone, don't salute him. And if anyone salutes you, don't answer him and lay my staff on the, on the lad's face. And it was a sense of urgency. Don't be stopping. Don't visit. When people would greet you, just, you know, you're going to have to be rude in this particular case. Just get there because you got something to do. So as the mother of the lad said, as the Lord lives and you yourself live, I'll not leave you. And he arose and followed her. So here, here's the deal. Elisha says to Gehazi, hey, I got a job for you. Take my staff and I want you to run to her house. Now, if you're Gehazi, what are you thinking? All right. I want to be part of something here. He gave me the staff. He told me to go do something. Here it is. I'm going to go and look what's going to happen here. But he says, and, and the, so then the mother and uh, Elisha come, and they follow at a distance. When the mother of the lad said, as the Lord lives, okay, in verse 31, then Gehazi passed on before them, laid the staff on the lad's face. But there was neither sound nor response. So we returned to meet him and told him, the lad is not awakened. Now, what do you think Gehazi is feeling right about now? It's like, okay. You give me your staff. You tell me to go put it on the, on the boy's face. I'm expecting big things happening. So what's up with this? You know, it's kind of like, well, what's this all about? So he goes back, and I can just see him now walking back going, <laughs> tell me to lay his staff on his face, and he's going to lay my staff and put it on there, and he's still laying there. And here comes Elisha and the Shunammite. He goes, I did what you told me to do, but the boy is still dead. So Elisha comes to the house, and behold, the lad was dead and laid on his bed. So he entered and shut the door behind them both and prayed to the Lord. And he went up and he lay on the child and he put his mouth on his mouth and his eyes on his eyes and his hands on his hands and he stretched himself on him and the flesh of the child became warm. Then he returned and walked in the house back and forth and went up and stretched himself on him and the lad sneezed seven times and the lad opened his eyes. 
And he called Gehazi and said, Call the Shunammite. So he called her. And when she came into him, he said, Take up your son. Then she went in and fell at his feet and bowed herself to the ground. And she took up her son and she went out. Now, is this celebrating time or what? This boy who was dead is raised from the dead. The mother's got to be ecstatic. But can you put yourself into the servant's position just for a minute? Okay, the focus is on the boy raising from the dead. It's on Elisha being involved in a miracle that God used him. Seven times he sneezed, indicating seven, which is a number that God uses throughout the Bible to indicate uh, perfection and that God's involved in something. And uh, so it was God who raised this boy from the dead. And then you gotta, you got to admit for a minute, I don't know if it's just me, but anybody identify with the servant here? He's standing in the corner of the room, and he's got to be sitting there going, he told me to come and do this, and I did it, and the kid's still dead. Then I got to go tell him he's still dead. Then he comes in, and he puts a staff, and he does this, he does that. The next thing you know, the kid's alive. Then he says, would you go get the mother? And I got to bring in the mother and say, look at Elisha did. <laughs> you know? I mean, did anybody feel this? I mean, okay, well, you don't think this is how he felt? I don't know. Well, it's, well look at this and keep going. Now, Elisha returns to Gilgal. There was a famine in the land. As the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, he said to his servant, see, serving others is really interesting because sometimes it's just like the basic stuff. So what does Elijah say? Hey, he says, whip us up a pot of stew. All right, now, he's just going through this identity crisis as a servant, Right? It's like, first I push her away, then he sends me to go raise her son, I can't get anything done. He comes, he does it, I bring the mother in, she's hugging and kissing and, and bowing at Elisha and jumping up and down and praising God. I'm standing over in the corner here. I'm not feeling real good about myself about this point, right? So we go and there's a big meeting, all the biggie, all the big prophets are having a convention, and, and Elisha comes and says, hey, can you whip us up some stew? Man, I mean, you kind of start to go, oh, man, I, you know, I think I can identify with this guy to some degree. He's well-intentioned, but you know what the result is? Look what happens. He says, so they went out into the field to gather herbs and uh, found a wild vine gathered from its full lap of wild gourds, came, sliced them into the pot of stew, for they didn't know what they were. So they poured it out for the men to eat, and it came about as they were eating the stew that they cried out and said, oh, man of God, there's death in the pot. And they were unable to eat. Hey, Elisha, go whip us up some stew. So he serves it. You know, he, he's probably been busting his butt in the kitchen there all day long with all the rest of them. He's got this all put together. got this nice, he's serving it. And he's presenting it very nicely in my head. He added the colors, the different, you know, he had the linen, he had it all out there. And, and it's a nice presentation. And he lays it all out before him. And all of a sudden, they all cry out in the room, we're all going to die if we eat the stew. It's like, man guess what happens? So Elisha says, well, bring me some flour. And he threw it in the pot, said, pour it out for the people that they may eat. No more poison. That's it. I've had enough of this. <laughs> huh? What's the danger here? What's the occupational hazard of every servant of God? Number two, how you ever felt used and unappreciated? <laughs> huh? Yeah, oh man, I'll tell you what, I'm looking at this guy thinking if there was ever a person that we can learn from that never felt appreciated for anything that he did, the man has to be 
Gehazi. I can't even make stew, man. I almost killed them all. I almost killed them. It's a danger of every servant. It's a danger of everybody who has ever worked behind the scenes and saw someone else get the credit for something that they did. It's for all those people that are the keepers of the spring that we talked about. Those solitary souls who slave behind the scenes, making things happen so that the person up front gets all the credit. It's every servant of God who, in some way or another, does his work in a way that it glorifies his Father who's in heaven. Every servant who serves God obediently, trusting him every day, and never gets an ounce of credit or recognition for anything that they do, but God is glorified through all of it. Every servant of God has to face the peril of feeling unappreciated, of feeling like they've been used for a, a greater purpose. It's for every person that's in the background or the shadows that never gets noticed, feels like no one cares and no one appreciates anything they do. It's the mother who consistently is there for her children and they don't even recognize it. The, the, the mother who continually changes the diapers of the twins when they're little children and that those children would never appreciate anything that, they've, that she's done for them. For the stacks of laundry that get done and the food that's put on the table, it's for every dad and every mom that goes out and makes a living so that their family can be provided for and no one says thank you and no one cares and no one appreciates. It's for every person that does what they do because it's the right thing to do and nobody in society stands up and applauds and recognizes you or gives you any kind of trophy for what you're doing because what you do is just right before God. It's for every one of us, really, the peril of feeling unappreciated and used. We can all identify with that, certainly. I think Gehazi certainly could at this particular point. It's like, man, everything I do, I try my hardest and no one appreciates anything. And yet, as we'll go through the story, you'll find that Gehazi continues to be the prophet of Elisha. And so you kind of wonder sometimes, maybe you're one of those people that work faithfully and diligently on your job, and yet the glory goes to another person at your office. And you're starting to feel a little resentment, maybe anger and bitterness. Maybe your efforts that you put out make someone else very successful. Maybe you're the assistant or the associate that no one wants to talk to because they don't want to talk to the talk dog instead of you. And you feel like, man, I could take care of their problem. No one appreciates what I do. Or I'm used and do all the dirty work and somebody else gets all the credit and they get all the salary increases and they get the promotions and they get the recognition and I'm the one behind the scenes doing everything. Maybe you remember that I work hard but because I'm not up front, I never get the credit club. But you know what's so funny? It's even the people up front feel that way too. There's a danger for everybody, those who are visible and invisible. Time who, uh, you know, as a, as a profession, you, know, you would think that they're highly visible. And yet they deal with the same thing. Man, I'm frustrated. I do my job and no one recognizes what I do. It's the people in the trenches, the linemen who open the hole, who take on the... Uh, I'm going to hurt myself. I keep doing this. It's, you know, the linemen who take on the block so that the linebackers can make the tackles and they can get all the credit and they can get Pro Bowl recognition. And you begin to realize that, you know what, but that's life, isn't it? That's life. 
if everybody does their job, certain people are prone more than other people to get the credit for it. But you know what's wonderful truth about all of that is that we can take heart. If you're feeling bitter or you're feeling resentful about the fact that no one appreciates or even recognizes you, don't ever forget this truth. In Hebrews 6.10, the Bible says, For God is not so unjust as to forget your work and the love which you have shown towards his name and having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. I like that. Every time I start to feel unappreciated, I need to go back to Scripture and realize what the Bible teaches. Do I think that God is so unjust that he doesn't see what I'm doing? That he doesn't recognize the work, the service behind the scenes? Do I think that God is so unjust that he's going to allow somebody else to get all the credit and all the glory and all the promotions and all the raises and all those things that come along with it as if somehow or another he doesn't see what I do? Because that's really what you're doing, you're doing is that we accuse God when we start to feel used and unappreciated. Because God is not so unjust as to forget our work. But he promises that he is a rewarder of those who do what is right before him. Payday one day for every unappreciated and used servant. And it will come at the hands of the master. I like that. Because I feel like you do. We all feel that way. We all feel used and unappreciated. But also on the other side of this too is that there's a warning and that's a warning against pride. Pride wants recognition. Pride wants praise. Pride wants Pride wants that. That's the root of all of it. J. Oswald Sanders in his book on spiritual leadership writes this. Nothing is more distasteful to God than self-conceit. He says, this first and fundamental sin, in essence, aims at enthroning self at the expense of God. When we talked about the influence of a servant, we realized that the reason that we do the good works that we do is so that men will glorify who? God, who is in heaven. Not us. God gets the glory. God gets the praise. He gets the recognition. We do what we do because it's the right thing to do, and when servants of God do what's right, then God gets the glory and he gets all the praise. And rightfully so. He goes on and says, Pride is a sin of whose presence its victims is least conscious. If we are honest when we measure ourselves by the life of our Lord who humbled himself even to the death on, cross, on a cross, we cannot be but overwhelmed with the tawdriness and shabbiness and even the vileness of our own hearts. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, death on the cross. He despised the shame and endured all of the pain as he looked forward to the glory that was ahead. His recognition, Jesus' recognition, really came after his resurrection. And he'll come in glory again, and he'll be truly recognized for the first time throughout all of the universe, where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord to the glory of God. Jesus was not recognized as a humble servant. He wasn't recognized for what he accomplished on the cross. But one day, as he comes in judgment and he reigns throughout the face of the earth and all of the universe, he'll be recognized and he'll be given the glory. See, that's the servant of God, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give. A couple of years ago, uh, a few years back, actually, when President Reagan was in office, he had a, a little uh, plaque that was behind his desk near the jelly bean jar. But the, uh, the plaque said this, there is no telling how far a man can get or what he can accomplish if he doesn't mind who gets the credit. One of my favorite 
things I like to tell uh, teams when I work with, with them is that, you know what, when you get right down to it, there's, there's no I in the word team. See, we are God's team, and there's no I. There's only one who deserves all the credit and all the glory. And the peril of a servant is that sometimes we'll become overprotective and we'll be insensitive to the needs of others. And oftentimes we'll feel used and we'll feel unappreciated. But don't you ever for a moment believe that God is not just. He is just. And he will reward those who do what is right before him. Next week we'll pick up a couple of more things that Gehazi has to teach us. But I don't know about you, but that's about all I can handle trying to apply this week. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this opportunity once again to uh, look into your word, to look at your servant and the servant Elisha and also his servant Gehazi. God, may we learn from him because certainly we can identify with him. God, help us to continually focus on this one truth and maybe this one truth alone, that you are just, that you do see all, and that you are a rewarder of those who do what is right. And we just thank you and look forward to that reward one day as we come into your presence and you say, well done, my good and faithful servant. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.